And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East at Sierra, West at Sierra, Southwest at Sierra, and North Northeast at Sierra. Wind southwest, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll, westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community bubbling up in East London, but always resonating way beyond this little corner of the world. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Pearl Wise and I'm here with Johnny Virgo and our new recruit, Sasha. Hello, Eastcasters. Good evening. And so this month's um, Eastcast is brimming. The studio is alive with the sounds of the East London Film Festival. More about that later. And I discover what treasures have been found underneath London's surface at the Museum of London's Crossrail exhibition, learning about the archaeological oddities and finds pulled out of the ground as a major piece of infrastructure is built. And I talked to some women smashing down the stereotype surrounding football. But first we have uh, Sam from the East London University City Life Stories and Rebecca, winner of this, year, this year's City Life Prize for Fiction by young writers with her short story, London Calling. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, Sam and Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about both the prize and the project that spawned it, please, Sam? Uh, sure, yes. Yeah. So um, City Life uh, is a project being run by the University of East London, um, which has come out of our pilot East Life. Um, and it's a life writing community um, cohesion project um, okay. where we went into the East End um, and we worked with hospice users and uh, groups of um, older people who used community centres for coffee mornings and things like that. Um, we took young volunteer writers from the Creative and Professional Writing Degree, EEL, and they interviewed these individuals one-on-one -on -one, um, to find out what their life stories were and their experiences of the East End. Um, and we published an anthology of writing um, from that, and it went so well that we decided that we wanted to take it uh, further in the UK. Um, so now it's called City Life, and we're going to be working with Lancaster University um, and a few others across the southwest, southeast. Yeah. Um, and then, as part of City Life, uh, we wanted to a increase the profile of the project, but also we realised that there was a lack of prizes for young fiction writers in London. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to write that as well and find out uh, what kind of talent was laying in wait um, out there. So we founded the City Life Prize for Fiction by Young Writers, uh, which um, Rebecca, who's with us today, um, won. Um, so yeah. Okay, it sounds like a really laudable project. I'm just really curious as to how does it actually work? Do um, Are people sharing their stories and then these are being transcribed and sort of put into a narrative form by these young professional writers or these volunteer writers or other people who are being interviewed or the people who are sharing their stories? Are they the ones shaping the narrative more themselves? 
So um, more the former, but we we take drafts of the stories back to the people that the stories are about yep. who have shared their stories with us okay. um, to find out from them if they're happy with them or not. So essentially what we do is the writers take their stories, they shape a, a narrative, a crea- like creatively written narrative of their lives mm. from what they've told them. Um, and then we go back to um, the subjects and we say, so how do you feel about this piece? Is there any part of it, of it that you'd like us to rewrite? Have we represented you in the right way? Um, and once they're happy with it, and that could be one draft or it could be 12, um, but once they're happy with it and only when they're happy with it, then it goes to publication. It sounds like there's a real element of catharsis in the process in itself. Yeah. Have you got any, well, I know we had a little chat before. If you had a goal for world domination for this project, what would it be? What would you... Because it was a very interesting take, so I think you could share that with our listeners. It'd be great. A goal for world domination. Yeah, well, I call world domination. You know, what's the ultimate realisation of this thing? I think um, one of the main aims of it is to increase communication between individuals in society. Uh, So City Life um, is, the full title is um, Stories Against Loneliness. Um, And one of the uh, main aims of the project really is to... um, is to seek out stories from voices that are largely unheard um, in society. Uh, so people that may not be able to participate in society as, as, as widely as um, perhaps other pri- more privileged groups of people. Um, and in doing so, uh, the conversations between people in communities increase. Therefore, they are more aware of their kind of like surroundings and how they how their surroundings affect them and what they need to do about their surroundings. So, um, for instance, we had a lot of stories on East Life. Um, that were very similar in terms of um, the theme of uh, gentrification of their mm-hmm. areas, community centres being closed down, um, you know, doctor surgeries being overrun um, and not, not being able to book appointments, um, markets being closed down and kind of the loss of community or the loss of the spirit of the East End, which is what they loved, you know, several years prior. So, yeah. So I guess you're trying to address the, these real-life phenomena with this artistic project, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. Cool. I've got a question. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, why did you decide... Um, obviously, you know, you've got this um, literature part of the... Uh, you know, it's part of the Faculty of East, East London University, so you, your, your stance is more towards literature. But why not giving these people their own voice and allowing them to tell them their stories themselves? Why did you decide to translate these stories through other people writing them? Um, well, that's a good point. Um, so I think one of the things that we are looking to do in the next stages of the project um, is to hold workshops. Um, uh, where we will be sitting with all the participants and giving them the tools to enable them to begin writing about their lives themselves. Um, But initially, uh, the reason that we worked with young writers was because we wanted to see what the similarities between different age groups were and what our shared life experiences are despite or or, or because of uh, our age differences so it was to bring the different generations together yeah. as well yeah and I think there's all there's always a lot to be gained from different generations of people talking to each other they yeah, they exactly. always learn a lot from each other yeah, yeah. speaking of such did, were there, were there uh, many young writers who came through that impressed you in the in the competition yeah so many my goodness it was yeah it was very difficult to choose and um, we shortlisted from just under 30 um, applicant, uh, sorry, entrance to ten. Okay. Um, and that was that was a yeah. It was um, it, th- they were just incredible. The, the the entries. I mean, all of them that we received were beautiful. Um, so yeah, the, the caliber of writing is out there. There's just um, not enough platforms for it. 
Brilliant. So, Rebecca, um, is it possible for you to tell us a bit about your story? So my story is about a homeless man who stalks a businessman through London. But it's also about quite a lot more than that. What I really wanted it to be and what I wanted it to say was I wanted it to be about people and about seeing people like past just this sort of appearance. So you might see a homeless man and you just think, you know, someone sleeping on the street. You see a businessman and you think, I don't know, capitalist suit wearing, gets in all, the, all this money. But actually when you look past that, you see that everyone is their own person, that that has to be valued. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're um, or Muslim in this case or Christian or atheist or whatever, you have to be valued. That's what it's about. How much experience did you had as a writer previously? Well, I've written two novels, unpublished novels. I started writing properly when I was 13. I think I've been doing it sort of my whole life. Mm -hmm. But when I decided I wanted to do it um, properly and I do want to do it later on, hopefully as a career, that's when I sort of sat down and was like, I'm going to do this and started writing a book. Okay, and what sort of things have you have motivated you to write in the past? I think I've always loved reading and that has been quite a massive sort of push towards going heading in this direction. But a lot of it I think I don't know what I'd do if I didn't write. There's so much in me there's so much I want to say and if I didn't if I couldn't write it down and I couldn't sort of share it or let my heart out, I just think I'd explode. <laughs> I know that feeling. Um, would it be possible for you to read your story? I know it's just a short story, so could we have a, have a listen? Absolutely. So this is called London Calling. There had been an accident on Fenchurch Street. A cyclist lay on her side on the tarmac, back arched, legs splayed out as if in mid-run, blind eyes turned to the sky. The red bicycle lay just behind her, the two wheels like two malformed wings. She could be a bird in flight if not for the trickle of blood pooling around one ear. Now she was a bird pressed and preserved, a curiosity of natural history. Arad, standing unnoticed on the street corner, had seen it all. The collision, the graceful flight through the air, the impact of flesh on tarmac. Traffic swirled around the cyclists like a cyclone. Police cars and ambulances with flashing lights and screeching sirens whirled past Arad as he stood watching. London had claimed one for its own. Now that she was dead, he felt empty, like a deflated balloon. He shuffled a little closer, past the officials with their high-vis jackets and loud, brusque voices. Nobody noticed him or tried to stop him. If he kept moving, nobody ever did. He cut a nod figure. Untrimmed beard burst out from beneath his tattered woolly hat. Free coats added bulk where there was none. He was sure he wouldn't recognise himself if he looked in the mirror. All the fat had drained off his cheeks and his eyes were sunken, like the bases of candles melted to wax. But nobody noticed him as he edged closer. Their eyes slid over him like they would any other piss stain on the subway wall. He was a part of London too, the London behind the shiny red gloss, the London of dark alleyways, broken bottles and tower blocks. Something close to guilt curdled in his stomach. It wasn't right, this woman being labelled up and packaged off like this. A few metres away, the paramedics were dispassionately unfolding a black body bag. They would zip her up and cart her off and nobody would blink. Not in London where seconds were dearer than gold. But Arad had nothing but time. He tugged off his hat and held it awkwardly in front of him, fumbling with the unravelling tassel with chapped fingers and black nails. He would pay his respects, even if the rest of London had no time to spare. In the end, 
There would be nothing he could do but shuffle along with them, try to keep warm. But it didn't sit right letting this woman pass on unnoticed. Though he reckoned she never bet on a homeless man being the one to mourn her death. Homeless. The word sat oddly on his tongue, not quite fitting to the shape of his mouth. He did not think of himself as homeless, though the only home he had now was London, the whole expanse of it, suburb and city and river. In his mind he was still himself, still Arad, an English teacher from Hounslow. Yet he had blinked and the world had seemed to shift around him. The walls had dropped away from his tiny rented apartment and London had swallowed him. London had swallowed this woman too. Men and women in dark suits rushed past, faces set into grim lines, steel eyes fixed firmly on the horizon. Many of them didn't notice the woman lying on the floor, about to be shipped away. Many of them saw the hive's jackets and the ambulance and chose not to notice. Arad gave one final nod at the woman, murmured a quick prayer to Allah and, shuffled and turned to shuffle on. He almost crashed into a man charging past. Dressed in the same black suit, grey tie, shined shoes, he was a clone of everyone else on the street apart from Arad. Surprise sparked in his eyes as he momentarily registered what had got in his way, but then his eyes dulled, rolled away from Arad to the dead woman on the ground. The man, businessman or banker, balding with sagging chin and inflating belly, peered over at her. He frowned in mild distaste. There was nothing in his eyes, not pity, not even relief that it was her instead of him. Nothing except annoyance that his journey had been interrupted. The man shoved his way past, his briefcase smashing into Arad's stomach and knocking the air out of him. Stunned, Arad watched the pale white head bobbing up and down, borne away by the flow of the street. Arad stared after him. The rest of the world seemed to blur and distort, leaving just that man with his immaculately pressed suit and leather briefcase, marching on with his nose in the air so he didn't have to see reality around him. He saw only a whitewashed world. Arad's nostrils flared. His fists curled into claws, bitten black nails carved into the flesh of his palms. Arad hated him. He hated his single-mindedness, his fat, his arrogant stride. He hated that imperious expression. He hated that man like he had never hated anyone before. That man, businessman or banker, strode around London as if he owned it, but he didn't know what the city really was. Arad had been a part of the streets for six months now, and he knew the truth. So, sorry to interrupt, but we've got to move on. But I'm really, well, I was taken away by the like the bigness of how much you covered. So, where can we read the rest of that story? You can find it on the City Life website, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, so we can read the rest of that there. Yeah, right. and we kind of left it on a nice cliffhanger there as well. So, <laughs> yeah. um, there's there's a, a tiny bit more to go, and people can hear the the end of the story. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, um, session. Yep, now here are some members of the women's football team Gold Diggers talking about their wonderful team and the beautiful game. Amy Lester, attacking midfield. I am the captain. I've been playing football since I was 10. Our Gold Diggers are the best. I think they're a team that is just so inclusive and they always try and do best by the player. You know, it's something that I do because I love it, not just because I'm good at it. <laughs> so when the season's going, we play competitively twice a week in a five-a-side league and a seven-a-side league, and then train once a week, so three times a week. It is a lot of commitment, yeah, it's, but we don't play on ability, we play on availability. 
we don't punish people for commitment. My name is Anna Gray and I'm generally defensive. So I've played with Gold Diggers since November 2015 and then I played a little bit at school. I kind of, um, at school I basically <laughs> I kind of got the football team going a bit on a Wednesday lunchtime. The longer we've played the more friendly it has gotten. When we first started there were clear friendship groups and stuff but then as we've all played together more, you know, we've got the socials which are fun. We're sponsored by Old Red Lion Div Club. So we have most of the socials usually start there with a few drinks and pies. <laughs> Gold Diggers is something crazy, like 40 quid for six months or something. It's a really good deal. And so if you pay that, I think if you miss a match, you're maybe losing a pound. That's okay. <laughs> and there's so many of us that if everyone came up to training every week, it'd be a bit hectic. <laughs> oh, I've got to go play. I'm Jesse. I play left wing. I've been playing with Gold Diggers for three months. Um, before that, I played at uni, having not played since I was 11. I played for a park team. It was like all boys, and then they started moving into leagues, and so I wasn't allowed to play anymore because you weren't allowed to have mixed teams. Got chucked out. There was no equivalent girls' teams. I love it. I love playing the football, and everyone here is just so great and fun and it's such an enjoyable thing to be a part of like it just makes me really proud on these things like everyone i meet who played football when they were younger has wanted to come back to it as an adult what's putting women off football at younger ages if they're coming back to it at older ages way short verity unlucky my name is fleur and i play up front mainly striker uh, i started playing football when i was really young um for arsenal soccer school mixed football then when i was 10 i had to leave because i was a girl um, being banned from a sport that you love just because of your sex at such a young age is quite like, if, if I'd have kept playing there, who knows where I could be now. And then sadly, same, same, same thing happened again when I was playing cricket and for like just a little bit later. When I was 15, I was told to leave, even though I was captain of the team, I had to leave because I was a girl and it's going to be dangerous for me. It's rubbish. This team now that I've set up, Golden Eggers FC, um, part of that is just trying to make it so there is that option for women, basically. The option that taken away from me. Barriers are huge for women getting to football. My name's Tatiana and I play centre midfield. I've been playing football since I was five years old. So, most of my life. In the States, it's just really, really common for women to play. So, it was just a local recreational league in the park behind my house. My mom said that... Um, that she put a ball in front of me when I was two years old and I just kicked it around the yard for an hour and so she's like, we should probably sign her up for a football team. So. You know, even if you play professional, most of them have to have jobs on the side because it doesn't pay enough. So you work a job and then you play on the weekends and stuff, but you know, it's empty stadiums and it's really just because you love playing. I think a lot of this comes back down to Title IX. I was shocked when I got to the UK um, and realized that you guys never had your version of Title IX, but it was in the mid-1970s and um, they basically mandated that universities had to spend the same amount of money on women's athletics as they had to spend on men's and it essentially transformed sport for women across the United States in one sweep. So the first kind of generation of it was quite controversial because they were cutting all these men's teams that were really good in order to redistribute the funding and but you know <laughs> one generation later and you have some of the most incredible sport for women I think in the world because of that 
legislation. Morocco's launching its first sort of generation of professional female football players, so very often they're really, really good, but they've always just been in the street because there's not a lot of opportunities for kind of organized women's football, and they're out there playing against all uh, cultural and gender stereotyping. So they get paid less than the men's teams, which we know universally is uh, pretty common, <laughs> but they're out there and they're playing every day and, and it's really amazing. Catherine is my name. I like to see myself as a bit of a CDM. Recently moved forward out of centre-back, which is quite an exciting move for me. One of my favourite people on the team is this girl called Chloe Pett. And I was on the bus home after a social and then was like, do you know what's funny is I feel such affinity to her, but that was only our third time meeting. And I feel like football just makes you think you're best friends with everyone. And every boy I've played with, they never pass. No one's bigger than, than 10 men. Like, you're not bigger than 10, pass the ball. The reason it annoys me when they don't tackle you properly, the reason it gets me is that I'm quite strong. I'm not small. I just feel like it's patronising. You're only doing this on the basis of my gender, not on my physicality. Whereas if you actually looked at me, I'm six foot and I weigh 72 kilograms. Like, I probably weigh as much as you and I'm probably as big as you. Wow, Sasha, it sounds like a really vibrant team yeah, out there. They are they are all great. I, I should probably start playing football again. <laughs> I miss oh, it. Oh, I thought it was your team. I thought uh, you were part see, of this. They, the team started in Edinburgh. It was called 99 Problems, but a pitch ain't one. And then Fleur, who um, set it up in Edinburgh, set it up in London again. But it's a different team, different members. They changed their name to Gold Diggers. They, she loves a pun. Yeah, they seem to be quite a fan of pun. Did you play football at school? I didn't play it at school. I only started in Edinburgh because of Fleur, really. But I've always, I always wanted to play because it's, it's a great activity. It's free and it's sociable. It's wonderful. What I used to always get annoyed was um, when you're sitting in a park and all the boys would go off and, you know, just play a friendly game and like. You kind of watch them and go, oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind joining in. And then you just kind of can't. Yeah. So, yeah, let's get rid of those barriers. Exactly. Um, right. As usual on East Coast, a complete change of subject. <laughs> um, so we are now in the studio uh, with Andrew Simpson, the founder and curator of the East London Film Festival. Hi, Andrew. Good to Thank have you. you with us. Thanks for having me. And Mark Gillis, director of Sync, Hello. one of the films that's going to be screened at the festival. Yes. And also uh, Mitra, um, director of Gollum. Hi, Mitra. Thank you. Hi. Um, so I know you rushed from Hackney Picture House to join us, so I'm, I'm glad <laughs> you made it. Thank you for, for coming. Thank you. Um, so both Sync and <coughs> Gollum will be screening at the festival this weekend. So, um, Andrew, you've changed the format a little bit this year. First of all, tell us what the festival is for those who don't know. Sure. So uh, the East End Film Festival is uh, an annual film and multimedia arts festival that takes place all across East London every summer. Um, we have previously kind of run in a more traditional sort of format, running across a couple of weeks. Um, the festival actually started life as a, uh, a local Tower Hamlets Council arts project. So it was a small local festival um, that was um, 
invented to give a uh, give a platform and a voice and exposure to all of the uh, the filmmakers who are living and working and making work about East London um, because obviously it's an incredibly dynamic sort of quarter of uh, this capital that we live in and um, uh, the festival was kind of created to sort of support those those filmmakers and those filmmaker artists who are living in East London um, and then essentially over the last few years the festival has expanded enormously remaining kind of committed to its East London roots but essentially kind of using the the cultural dynamism and multicultural sort of vibrancy as sort of a jumping off point to create kind of a a, a much larger internationally focused um, film and multimedia arts festival. Um, so that's what that's what we do, and we host around 150 screenings, events, debates, talks, live cross-platform performances, parties, all sorts of things across kind of around 15 to 20 venues. Uh, and as I say, kind of we've normally run over a couple of weeks, but this year we've kind of broken the festival up into thematic sections and we're running across every single weekend in June. So we're just about to hit weekend three of five. I'm very yeah. tired already. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Lots of screenings, Q&As, parties. That for the, right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of work, not a lot of sleep. But yeah, it's great yeah. fun. We've screened some amazing work already. We opened with a whole weekend of activity in Old Spitalfields Market. We raised 375 kilos of food for Tower Hamlet's Food Bank. Um, we're very kind of committed to sort of grassroots kind of community activity as well as doing kind of the red carpet international premiere thing. We do both, which yeah. I think gives us a bit of a sort of a unique kind of personality when it comes to, to film festivals. We'll have world premieres of big films that we'll do with film distributors. We'll have kind of edgy first and second time directors who, um, you know, who we're kind of like breaking onto the scene for the first time. And we'll also have sort of very kind of... Um, yeah, very kind of grassroots, community-focused kind of outreach programming that's kind of free for the community as well. So those are all the sorts of bits and pieces we do. Um, you've been on the show before, and it was many about years many years ago, about five years ago, and you were kind of, um, for that festival, you were flirting with a kind of music festival side of it. There oh, was that's a, right, There yeah. was a little kind of crossover of music. Yeah. So... From what I've seen, you've decided not to well, go in that direction. Kind of, kind of, half, kind of half and half. So the cross arts live music thing is a big part of what we do. Again, that kind of feeds off the spirit of the area because there, are, you know, there's so many kind of, again, kind of so many artists kind of working in East London. Kind of, we like to explore the crossover between film and and other disciplines. So we do do live soundtracks and live performance and live poetry and all sorts of stuff, all sorts of stuff like that. Kind of mixed with film in the festival every year and that's actually what next weekend is for that's right. East End Submerge which is our cross arts weekend but it is a slightly different thing we did actually kind of uh, for a couple of years we kind of launched kind of a fully fledged music festival um, called East End Live which was kind of we'd sort of develop it I mean we and, and we might kind of we might actually do that again we'd like to have that kind of you know, we, we'd like to sort of pursue that sort of South by Southwest model where you have kind of like film, music, digital technology, and that is kind of like three festivals in one. But and, you, know, and East need a, you need a lot of money for that. You need money, but East London's a perfect place for that. Exactly. You know? yeah. And the other thing I've noticed in the past couple of years is how many new independent cinemas have opened. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. been amazing. Just even in the past, I don't know, every time I kind of look in the paper or I'm, I'm sort of going somewhere and there's, oh, there's a new cinema. Yeah. And it's, it's um, wh why do you think that is? What's going on? I mean, again, I think it's just because it is, a, you know, it's such a 
creative kind of vibrant part of London really and I suppose you know it goes sort of hand in hand with lots of different kind of types of people moving into the area um, you know you've got a, a real sort of mix of um, of, of, of backgrounds and incomes in East London, everywhere from some of the richest parts of, of London in the city to some of the poorest in Tower Hamlets. So there is this, there's this incredibly kind of vibrant mix that doesn't really exist anywhere else, and that's sort of why we say the festival has an East End Film Festival personality, even if it's international, um, sort of look, um, looking outwards. Um, but I think that's also kind of like that's, the, that's sort of the, the, the hotbed that sort of allows cinemas to keep opening so we've got one of those in the brand new very beautiful Curzon Oldgate uh, there'll be I think they'll we'll have two more by the time the festival rolls around next year there's going to be one uh, in an old uh, art deco building on Bethnal Green Road called the Rex that will be open by next year wow. there's going to be another Curzon in Hoxton uh, by then as well so I mean it's kind of yeah they're just they're exploding all over the place but it's good I mean it's, you know we've got more screens to show you know we've got no shortage of of great work to show we've actually had if anything kind of a shortage of yeah, and places you, to show it all so if you speak to great. anyone kind of over 80 they always say oh you know east london used to be full of cinemas like on every street corner yeah. there was a cinema so maybe we're going back to maybe that. we are maybe we are <laughs> i was speaking to someone um, the person who runs the rio cinema in dulston recently and he was he was talking about how there actually used to be about 50 cinemas on kingsman road it is crazy because you used to just go to the picture palace on the corner of your street yeah three times a week but yeah so yeah maybe we're slowly getting back towards that I don't know. so we have with us two filmmakers who are both showing films this weekend at the festival andrew do you want to introduce them because you program them so <laughs> i'm putting you on the spot but um it would be nice to kind of get your take and and you know why why you decided to to put these two films on yeah sure so i mean uh, we, we love to screen work that kind of has a very deep connection to not just East London, but kind of London as a whole and kind of represents, again, that kind of, you know, that very vibrant, that very deep, that very kind of like wide ranging kind of um, experience of life that kind of London contains. Uh, and I think in in some ways similar, but also in kind of quite different ways, Mark, Mark and, um, and Mitra's films kind of reflect that. So um, Mark's film, Sync, um, is, a, is a really a really taut, very powerful, um, um, I think quite sad, but very kind of insightful um, film about um, a turning point in a man's life. And that's kind of very rooted in, um, in Deptford and New Cross, where the film was, uh, where the film was shot. And um, uh, both myself and um, the festival director, when we saw it, we were very moved by the film and it's actually one of the I think one of the first features we programmed for this year's um, festival we spoke to you quite early it's been quite yeah, a few months quite, now yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think you're one of the first kind of features that we that we confirmed and oh. we're delighted to be hosting the world premiere of that and then um, Mitra's film Golem which is I mean a brilliantly crafted film but also I think really refreshing and really unusual for for representing a sort of a, a, a London diaspora that doesn't really get shown on screen very often. Um, I'm sure sort of Mitra will sort of talk about that yeah. um, more, but that, it, 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 feels, it feels kind of very revelatory in that sense and, and, and has a very deep uh, connection to East London, which again, I'm sure Mitra will talk about. So it, it really kind of stayed with us. And uh, yeah, again, we're, we're delighted to have it in the programme. So yeah. Excellent. Should we hear a trailer from Sync? Thank you. 
wood. Are there any ways you feel we might be able to further assist you in finding full-time employment? Find me full-time employment. Ah, uh, it's all right. I'll get them. It's just that the claim don't come through till next week. <laughs> Dad! I never want to see you like that again. I can't. Hello. Who's your dad? How did you get out? He's old, you know. Don't suppose you've got any bar jumps going? I thought so, would you? You've done the worst of it! Six months you was home and gone! You're alive! You're alive! You're not! Not by a long way! Pulling over for me, please, sir. I don't think I can. I can't do this. So that was the trailer for Sink, um, which is uh, directed by Mark Gillis. Um, it's a bit weird, isn't it, having a trailer without the, <laughs> the pictures? You've when got to create the pictures you in your mind. You're going to play the trailer. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, how's that going to work? Actually, it kind of works. It kind of works. <laughs> you just, get you get the gist. Yeah, so give us a, the kind of brief synopsis. So it's about a man on zero hours, and he used to be a skilled manual worker, and he's now only got um, zero hours, uh, sort of menial work. And he's in that position, I think, that a lot of people find themselves in looking after the generation above and below. So his dad's on the edge of some kind of dementia and his his son has been in and out of trouble with uh, drugs. And I think uh, people living that life on, on zero hours and the, the, the complete sort of insecurity of that, it's not, it's not one big thing that comes into your life. It's this constant drip of, on their own, seemingly innocuous things that just together... Uh, come come in and, and, and kind of break people, really. Uh, and so Mickey takes a course of action that is completely outside his character and actually outside his moral viewpoint as well. So really, I think the film kind of leaves you with a moral question that the film itself doesn't answer, um, which is to say that after all that's happened, and uh, with so many people living in this way, you know, where is our moral core now? What's what's happened to that? Who's to say what's right or wrong? Having said all that, it's quite funny as well. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not... And he's a really nice... He's, quite, he's a really warm he's character. A, a really warm character. Yeah. He's just a very good man, you know, that's driven to this. Not not in a kind of clawing way. He's just, he's just a good, good bloke, you know. He's a sort of uh, everyman. And I think there's a... Um, you know, it isn't working-class people screaming at each other for two hours. It, there is a sort of... There is a warmth to it. And in a weird kind of way, uh, uh, a tenderness, I suppose, around these kind of working-class men and the way they are around each other. Yeah, because there's a, there's a lovely relationship between, you know, 
grandfather, father, son, yeah. you know, and the, there's yeah. a kind of trio of them all struggling with their own thing. Struggling with their own thing. And also I think there's a sort of a look at how their relationship with work has changed over those three generations. So mm. you've got Mickey who, you know, had this, what he thought was his, his you know, life's work. Uh, and now just finding this very menial work. He's the, the grandfather who, you know, in his confused state of mind, thinks he still is at work sometimes, and the son who really hasn't had a relationship with work yet, and I think you see that sort of difference in yeah. those working-class, you know, jobs uh, over those three generations and how that's changed. So when I saw it was a kitchen sink drama, that's how it's described, I thought, hmm, it's kind of like kitchen sink but grown up. This is what happens when the young, angry young men in the kitchen sink dramas that, you know, they're, they're God, the kind of main of protagonists. Yeah, and yeah that's and like, great. What, what can happens I, next? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's yours. Keep it. Keep it I'll rewrite the blurb. That's really good. <laughs> um, so we won't, you know, obviously we won't give the end away but uh, there is there are obvious comparisons with i daniel blake just because of that kind of struggling i think we're um, in the same area yeah, yeah with a man on on zero hours i think it's probably told in a in a different way um but uh yeah i i i appreciate we're in the same kind of ballpark yeah yeah. But you know there is that kind of warmth and humor and it's, yeah. it's I think that that kind of separates it a bit it's not you don't come out crying you actually sort of leave a bit on a on a, on a lighter well, note I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah it's kind of uh, not exactly uplifting but there's something about the, the, yeah there's something about it that isn't you know that full on kind of gloom and doom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um for the for those who want to see it when is it on it's on this weekend we are um at the wonderful Rich Mix in yes. Shoreditch at 9pm on Friday, this Friday the 16th. Great. So um, just go on the East End Film yeah, Festival website.com and uh, yeah, you find um, all the listings for this weekend and direct links for booking tickets. Great. We're going to change the ambience a little bit. Um, so uh, we're going to play just a little bit of music from this next film that we're going to talk about. So that's a, a piece of music that was actually created for the film, especially yes. for Golam. Yes. Um, so, Mitra, <coughs> uh, you're a photographer mainly. That's your kind of your background. Yes. Um, tell tell us why you decided to make this film. What what kind of pushed you to? It's your first feature film, yes, I believe. Yes, it is. I made three short films, two for BFI actually, but. I've always been interested in film and and this particular film actually was inspired by a <clears throat> photographic project I did a few years ago on Iranian community in London. So I came across um, the majority of them were struggling, some of them were in exile and it really moved me, you know, extreme resilience in this community. So... I came across so the story really is inspired by real character I met <coughs> in, for this project. And 
He was a very mysterious and enigmatic and charismatic Iranian taxi driver who, despite, um, really liked the idea and we got on very well and he volunteered to participate and each participant was supposed to tell their stories. He was very reluctant to tell his story. So that was very intriguing to me and... Um, on the basis of, um, and then, yeah, after the project, I uh, had the project finished. I sent them the pictures, and then I had a big show at the Tate Britain. I invited them all, and he didn't show up. So I was just wondering what happened to him. And then um, I tried to chase him up, and he disappeared without a trace. <laughs> so he left an impression, to say the least, and on the basis of little information I had, I... Uh, developed the idea, and then I got together with a friend, an Iranian um, writer, um, Sirius Masudi, and we turned it into a script. And um, so the rest is is kind of fiction, but still inspired by other stories in this project. So it's interesting. There is a similarity mm-hmm. with the two films about these kind of male protagonists struggling with a change, a moment in life that will change them dramatically in, in some way. Um, I haven't seen this film, so I don't know what happens, and obviously um, you're not going to give yeah. it away, but it's very intriguing. And, and also, yeah, the Iranian community, is we don't see it much in, in the media. We don't see it in film that much. Yeah. So it's interesting to get this insight into, yeah. you know, the Iranian diaspora yeah. in, in London. Actually, this is the first British film which focuses on Iranian community in London. There is another film that was made a few years ago in Newcastle and um, about the Iranians, but in terms of community in London, it was the first film, yeah. And did you meet him in a taxi? Is that how you met? Or Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, No, I mean, I photographed him. We got on very well. He came to a few shoots and, um, yeah, so... And then he disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this film is going to be on Friday at the Hackney Picture House and then on Sunday at the Curzon. At the Curzon. At the Curzon. Yeah, 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 on Sunday afternoon. So um, I don't know what, what kind of... What's the what, what there's there's an east there's a really interesting East London connection with the Hackney Picnic Picture House with this film as well. I think it even features in it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, Mitra's probably better qualified to sort of talk <laughs> in, in more detail about that. But yeah, that is sort of yeah a feature in the film that it uh, you know it, a lot of it is shot around Hackney. Yeah, uh, the majority of um, locations were shot in East London, um, not just Hackney, other parts as well. But yeah. Um, so that was very interesting. I mean, basically, they are living on the edge. So this idea of a... I I looked uh, for locations very hard, but not only atmospheric locations, but uh, to look for places that you don't quite or immediately associate with London. Mm. Um, So I think the locations are quite interesting um so if you like it's unseen city and almost that it reflects people who are living on the edge 
and a lot is shot at night right so you get this yeah, kind of because he drives yeah, he's driving night, through yeah. the night yeah so you get these beautiful images of yeah. you know london lights and things yeah. like that thank you so much all of you for joining us thank um, you. and yeah really looking forward to each of these you know jam-packed weekends of, of film all over east london and especially this weekend i think it's 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 there's so much going on so oh, there is yeah. it's uh, 35 or 40 different events too too many screenings to choose from um at the end of the show we're going to hear a bit of the music um from uh sync because it's quite you know i think you got composers especially uh for well, no uh, it was um it was interesting uh, we there was a there were composers uh, doing stuff in the end um i i found um uh, this topic records who were the oldest uh, label in the uk uh, and they have a huge catalog back catalog of folk songs and i started investigating and the lyrics were absolutely perfect you know from songs written 200 years ago so in the end uh, we got the uh, brilliant uh, oliver hoare and his band to record new versions of them so they're they're all uh, that all the songs are recorded by ollie and his band but they are all old folk songs new versions fantastic mm. thank you so much okay you're listening to the east cast show on resonance 104.4 fm and dab don't forget you can get in touch with us on twitter and facebook at east cast show and you can listen again to our interviews and music online on itunes east cast show london and at eastcastshow.com where you can also sign up to the monthly newsletter where you'll find out even more about all the wonderful people we have on the show and you'll get all our audio news straight into your inbox now if you're like me you're curious about the subterranean history of london then you know there's nothing like the building of a huge transport project to throw up unexpected objects buried beneath the metropolis so this month i met up with jackie cayley the curator of the museum of london's crossrail exhibition to find out how the crossrail exhibition threw up some surprises the exhibition is about the archaeology of Crossrail, but we also realised that the whole kind of engineering and construction side of it was so fascinating that we really wanted to bring that story in as well. And uh, we decided to, to put the exhibition on down here in Docklands because obviously uh, the uh, Crossrail line runs from east to west London and we very much saw it as starting in east London so we wanted to place it here in, in a museum that was in east London in the docks. Uh, we had a number of um, cemeteries or burial sites that were disturbed as part of the crossrail work, mainly in central London. Uh, so before the archaeologists ever start working on the site, they will have done a lot of research, so they're expecting to find those things. One of the things we wanted to highlight in the exhibition as well is that the archaeologists are working on big construction sites. So it's a bit like being a construction worker on a site. You have to wear the same kind of PPE, the same kind of safety clothing as the builders and construction workers do. So as an archaeologist, you're doing all your archaeological work, very fine work, but you're doing it on these huge construction sites. So, of course, safety is, is a key factor, yeah. but also that cooperation. And the, the, the construction workers and the archaeologists did manage to work very closely together and very well together. I mean, they have to on these kind of sites because they are working just physically so close together. 
prehistoric remains are so kind of intangible. They're very, um, often they're scattered. These people were often hunter-gatherers who were moving on, you know, lighting a fire, sitting down, doing something, then moving on. So it's not like you had a, a town or something like that to find. Um, so it was quite amazing, really, on the long strip of land that the archaeologists worked on alongside the railway there at, at North Woolwich that they happened upon this scatter of flints which show us that somebody was making a tool, a flint tool, 8,000 years ago and sat at that place mm -hmm. and made the tool. And this was the rubbish that they left behind when they got up and walked away and took the tool away with them. Uh, and to me, that's just an incredible, amazing kind of uh, moment in time, a snapshot in time, really, that's, that's captured and then stays there. And then 8,000 years later, archaeologists come along and find it. We, there's everything from, as I said, Mesolithic flints. Um, that We have animal bones from West London dating back about 68 thousand years ago so really really okay. ancient remains all the way up to um you know the cross and blackwell jam jars which which date to the late you know sort of 1800s and early 1900s um so one of the first objects you see when you come in is this statue of saint barbara so it's a modern statue but it's one of the most recent things that has been acquired by the museum actually it's um donated to the museum by one of the construction companies and saint barbara is patron saint of miners and tunnelers nice. uh, and so a statue of saint barbara was placed inside the tunnels for the builders when they were for the miners and tunnelers um, they would walk past it and it's like a good luck symbol. So some of them will be Christian, some of them may say a prayer, but for many of them, it's just a good luck symbol and that they would want that statue to be there before they would go in. So we're walking through the Canning Town to Canary Wharf section, and I'm seeing just to my right here, um, a chain, a, a wonderful rusted chain. What's, what's the history of this? Well, this is um, this comes from over by Lemus, so where the, the River Lee runs into the, the Thames. And um, it's basically, some of the remains of the Thames Ironworks and Shipbuilding Company. Uh, it was a massive employer in the area, massive industry in the 19th century, um, went out of uh, business around about 1912. Uh, and they were builders of uh, iron ships. So very in that very early on, uh, they were involved in that development from timber ships to, to ironclad ships. Um, and what the archaeologists uncovered, and you can see a large photograph here, very muddy looking uh, yeah. kind of wooden uh, structures, and that's part of the slipway. So one of the slipways that these enormous ships would have come down into the Thames when they were being launched. And the iron chain was found um, close to the slipway, and we think it was probably one of many chains that would have been attached to the ships to sort of try and slow them down as they're coming down the slipway into, into, the, uh, into the river. And it was used to, this is the ship yard where they built Royal Navy ships as well, as well as commercial ships. Absolutely. Uh, lots of Royal Navy ships, lots of uh, internationally, they, they built also um, pleasure cruises for like Queen Victoria, for the Pope at the time. So they were internationally known. They, they also were building for the Japanese Navy, for various international navies. It's a massive, massive industry. The fern push is quite interesting, I'll just point that out. This is, um, when I was sort of doing research about the, the, the site and how we would present it in the exhibition, I wanted to show some film footage, early footage of ships being uh, launched there. And what I came across, of course, was the tragedy of the Albion, in fact, which is from 1898. And it was one of the worst peacetime tragedies on the Thames. Uh, a ship was being launched, HMS Albion, and tens of thousands of people had turned out onto the dockside to, to watch it. 
uh, being launched. And as the ship came into the uh, river, this backwash came back up, a wave came back up and hit the shore, and in particular a bridge where um, about over 100 people were standing, okay. and about 38 people were, were drowned. Um, I think afterwards uh, it was realised that the bridge, for example, that the people that died were standing on, you know, couldn't have supported that many people, but of course people had thronged onto it in their excitement. Members of the royal family were there to launch the ship, so it was a real like, festive holiday. The kind of tragic bit at the very end of this film footage, you can see the little boats that have gone out from uh, the dockyard to try and save people as well. So these are the, like, the rescue workers, and you can see the faces of the men. I mean, they're really gaunt, really... Uh, they you know, seem very, they very, find, yeah, yeah, and it's very emotional. This was the largest excavation on the uh, Crossrail project, and um, over 60 archaeologists worked on it for on and off over about two years. So very, very big excavation, um, just close to where Liverpool Street Station is today. Okay. And what we have here, this first section, is um, just about the Roman remains, so the Roman archaeology that was dug up there. And then we have another section on the, the medieval and the later remains. Was there much about this area that's not known? Lots and lots of things were found, and um, a lot of it was really finding out more about things that we kind of knew a little bit about already. So, for example, in the case over here, we have Roman horseshoes. Oh. Um, these are called hippo sandals, and we think they were probably temporary horseshoes, probably also for oxen. So for any animals that would have been carrying a load in the city, which probably would have had quite um, sort of... Uh, well, sort of cobbled or cobbled are quite hard surface streets. So okay. for the animals to get a bit of purchase, they would probably put these um, temporary horseshoes onto them. Um, the interesting thing here is that this is the largest quantity that have ever been found from a single excavation in London. The site is just outside the Roman city walls, so we're just yeah. outside the Roman settlement. So it's likely that something to do with horses is definitely happening there. They're either stabling them, perhaps they're slaughtering old horses, mm -hmm. but it seems to be an area that they're keeping horses in. Um, and as I say, a lot of horse bones, and then also there's evidence of, of horseshoes as well. Well, they are really... They're really uh, interesting objects. They're kind of gnarled and... The two darker, kind of shinier-looking skulls are from um, a ditch that ran alongside a road just by the Walbrook. So they would have been in, um, again, probably quite damp conditions in the ditch. The other two are kind of paler, and they're slightly pitted. They, they look like they've rolled around more. They're more damaged, their surface. And as you yeah. say, one of them has got these flint pebbles in the eye socket. We think these have probably moved around and probably in gravel. Um, so it's thought that they may have come from somewhere else in London and have come in in gravel that was brought to the site. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we really don't know. We, uh, we find these things and then we um, try to pull together an answer, you know. Um, so it, it's really fascinating because every time we go back to excavate in this area, we find out a little bit more. Yeah. So all you need is another large trans infrastructure project. Absolutely, and yeah. then that'll be that. This is a good story, actually. Okay. Um, you were asking earlier about sort of serendipity and, and um, uh, strange discoveries, and I think this also ties in with um, the story of, of the archaeologists and the construction workers working so closely together. Uh, we're looking at this pot in a, in a case, uh, and the story of it uh, lies just to one side there. Uh, this photograph of one of the uh, miners, professional miners, who is working on the site at Liverpool Street. Yeah. And uh, he's and holding the pot pretty proudly. He, he it's is, like he's given he birth. Is. Yeah, absolutely. Or something like that. <laughs> um, and this was quite a small shaft that was being excavated by the miners, and it was too dangerous for the archaeologists to go into because it was quite small it's an access shaft not one of the big tunnels yeah um 
And so the archaeologists waited outside, the miners worked inside, and they would take digital photos, come back out, tell the archaeologists what they'd found, and the archaeologists would try to identify what they were finding. They also, though, collected any artifacts they found, and this part fell from the ceiling of the shaft. And if uh, this man hadn't been there to catch it, um, it would have just smashed on the ground. More importantly than that was it was also full of a cremation burial. So it actually contained a cremated adult. Um, and so, of course, if that had fallen and broken, that would have just gone everywhere. Yeah. So we're really, really incredibly lucky. And it was a story that I really wanted to put, uh, put into the exhibition as well. Um, the miner is called Keith Hancock. And uh, as you say, he's photographed there very proudly holding this pot that yeah. Well, he, he's an archaeologist now, an honorary archaeologist. An honorary archaeologist. Brilliant. Wow, that's a great story. And the pot there, sitting there. What's this thing next to it? This, is, uh, this came from uh, one of the um, skeletons that was excavated. Uh, part of the Roman cemetery uh, was also found on the, on the site. Um, eight individuals were excavated, and one of them had this ring um, around their wrist. So um, above it, you can see loads an X-ray of it as well, just to show how um, archaeologists and researchers use X-rays for very corroded metal. And it shows, in this case, we can see that the join of the metal a little bit more clearly there when, when you see the X-ray. And also you can see how corroded it is in places. Have we got, sorry, I didn't catch what... what? What, would, what was it? Do we know? Yeah, so, um, so the ring was, was placed around um, uh, the wrist of an individual. So when the skeleton was excavated, they found the, um, the ring still around the bone. Are we thinking jewellery or a, a manacle or something? Possibly like? more like a manacle. It's very, very heavy, dense iron. When it, was, when it was new, when it would have been worn, it would have been incredibly heavy to have worn it. Um, so there's some discussion about it being used perhaps symbolically as a manacle. So it may not have been worn in life but it may have been put onto the person in, bar in death. In, as, there's a huge range of artifacts in the exhibition. Uh, I mean, when you first come into the exhibition, you'll see the cross rail, uh, the actual railway line is, is up on one wall, and you can see that it runs right across London and also right through the centre of London. So we've got great slices of history, both east and west, on the, the outer edges of London, um, in areas that really have um, that kind of prehistoric, very ancient... Um, history or prehistory uh, and then really they're kind of rural countryside areas until the 19th century and then we start to get that kind of industrial as, as London gets bigger we get London pushing out and those kind of industrial remains both to the far east and the far west um, and then of course in the centre you have uh, pretty much 2,000 years worth of, of people living particularly say in the city of London mm -hmm. from the Roman period onwards um, so uh, incredible range of artefacts and and the exhibition has a wealth of stuff in it, artefacts and facts about the building of Crossrail and the genesis of the city. The exhibition is on until the 3rd of September, is suitable for all and is absolutely free. That's what we like. Thank you very much, Johnny. It's time to say goodbye. Eastcast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. But in the meantime, you can find everything on eastcastshow.com and we are also available as a podcast on iTunes. Now to play us out is Rigs of Our Time by Malik Griss and performed by Oliver Hoare and the late great. And this is from Mark Gillis's film Sink. So 
Thanks for listening. Join us again next month on EastCast. is a show exploring Middle East and North African and occasionally South Asian arts and culture. Find out more about us on sixpillars.org or on Twitter with the number six, Pillars. My name is Cevdet Erek, and I am showing a work at the Pavilion of Turkey. You're not just showing a work, are you? You are the Pavilion of Turkey this year. It's not a group show. It's not. Yeah, it's not a group show, that's no, for sure. But also, I didn't do it all with my hands or with my thinking, so it's, it has a collaborative part.